scripture reading for today is Acts 9, 1 through 5. You can follow along in your Bibles or up on the screen. Um, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This is God's word. Father, thank you for bringing us here today to hear your word, to learn who you are. Lord, cause us to love you more, to know you more. But Lord, we pray even more that you would be glorified today. Pray, Lord, that you would forgive me even now as I will certainly come short of testifying of your glory. But I pray, Lord, that you would use my words, that you would meet us here, Lord, that we would hear your heart and fall at your feet in worship. And in your name we pray, amen. So here we have the conversion of Paul as recorded in the book of Acts. Acts is a book of history. It kind of records the first half a century of the the foundations of the church of Jesus. And we see Paul referred to here as Saul. I just want to point out these are the same people. Saul is simply his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. Uh, They are the same person, and his name is used interchangeably. Um, You guys, many of you know that we uh, partner with an orphanage on the other side of the world, and we send letters and pray for uh, some of the orphans there. And our family has uh, been paired with a girl, Rika. And um, as, as Richa... See, I'm saying it wrong. See, this is illustrating my point here. Richa. And, um, and Karen was on the other side of the world. You guys know uh, Karen Klein. She was on the other side of the world working with them. And, and working with Richa in particular and kind of going through my entire family and all of our names. And she wanted to learn our names. So uh, there was Allison and Caitlin Michaela and Lorelai and Carissa, and all those were pretty easy for her. But when she came to my name, she says, Jeff, what kind of name is Jeff? <laughs> In our culture, it's not, you know, it's not that uncommon. Maybe, maybe of a different generation, not many kids are being named Jeff today. But if I were to 
relocate to the other side of the world, I would probably adopt a name like Akesh or Sid or something that's more common in their vernacular. And I, I, I wouldn't, it, you know, it's, it's maybe a little bit different here today in our culture because we celebrate, we've been celebrating these, you know, these different cultures coming in and but, but there was a time not long ago when people would come from other countries and they also would take on American names that would be easier to pronounce. Um, that's essentially Paul. Paul, he, he was born into a Hebrew family, but he was a Roman citizen. He was given a Greek name, Paul, and he was given a Hebrew name, Saul. So that's what we have here. I'm going to probably refer to him mostly as Paul, but as we read through You'll see Saul, it's not going to be anybody different. And in the context here, we have Paul, who just one chapter earlier was standing in approval of the execution of Stephen. Stephen was one of the first deacons in the church. He was a, man, a great man of faith. And he became the first martyr. And Paul stood in approval of judgment saying this man, this Christian, because of his heresy, deserves to die. And now we see him going out to continue persecuting the church, to continue seeking out Christians that he could bring them back to Jerusalem in chains to face judgment and potentially even the same sentence that had just been carried out on Stephen. So that's the context of what's happening here. So I I have a question for you I've been thinking about this week. And the question is, who in Scripture do you most identify with? Have you you ever considered that? Is there like your favorite character in Scripture that you you see yourself in a lot? Um, in, In a lot of ways, this question is a lot like the job interview question. What is your greatest weakness? Right? Of course, there's one correct answer to that. My greatest weakness is that I work too hard. Correct? (laughs) Nobody goes in and says, uh, you know, my greatest weakness is I'm lazy. My greatest weakness is I'm undependable. I have a 70 IQ. I'm a thief. Nobody goes into job interviews and says these things, right? They may be true, but you don't say these things. Nobody goes in and says, my greatest weakness is I love money and I will do anything for 30 pieces of silver, right? We don't, we don't look at scripture and say, you know who I identify most with? Judas. That's, that's who I identify with. No, usually the answer is, if you're a guy, it's Peter. You know, man of great boldness. Wasn't afraid to try new things. Sure, he sunk, but he walked on water first. You know, I, I, that's the guy I want to relate with. Women, it's probably Martha, right? She gets rebuked by Jesus because her sister Mary is worshiping Jesus, and Martha, she's too busy serving Jesus with actions, right? That's who we want to identify with, people who maybe glorify our strengths and justify us in maybe being proud of those strengths. Um, Following in that tradition... I'll I'll share with you who I identify most with, and that's Paul. (laughs) Paul was a brilliant man. 
<laughs> he was an intellectual. He was well considered. He knew his philosophy. Matter of fact, you go and study philosophy today, you will find that Paul had as much of an impact in Western philosophy as Aristotle and Socrates and Plato. I mean, he's in there with the greats. He was well considered. I, I kind of like to think of myself as someone who thinks things through. Right? Even if I'm wrong. There's, um, I, I'm devoted to what I think is true, even if I'm wrong. So there's, I, I'm going to put my lovely wife on the spot here for a second. There's a question that, I often, that is often asked of me from my wife. And the question is, do you always think you're right? And, and the answer, Allison, is yes. The, the more complete answer is, if I didn't think I was right, I wouldn't think it. Right? If I thought I was wrong, I would think something different. Right? So if I think it, I, it's obviously because I think it's right. And if I think it's right, I'm going to be devoted to it. And that's, that's Paul. He thinks he's right. And he's in good company. If, if I had been present at the time of Jesus, I don't think I would have been Peter. I, I don't think that I would have dropped my fishing business to leave and follow Jesus. I think I would have been pretty convinced that this guy was a cult leader. That the message that he's teaching that is so contrary to hundreds of, year, hundreds of years of Jewish tradition, of understanding of Scripture... Uh, this is heresy. Pretty sure I would have stood in opposition to it. May not have been as smart or as intellectual as Paul, but I would have stood with him, I think. And that brings us to our text today. Beginning of verse 1 says, But Saul breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. My question here is, do you think that Paul was saying that morning, you know what, I'm going to do evil today? Or do you think he thought he was pretty well justified? Do you think that he thought his actions were righteous? This first section here we're going to be talking about is Paul's righteousness. Not God's righteousness, Paul's righteousness. In Paul's righteousness, he is convinced that Jesus was rightly executed. That Stephen was rightly stoned to death. And that the church must be destroyed. It is heresy. It is a man claiming to be God. That's heresy in Paul's mind. Unacceptable. Philippians chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there really quickly. Philippians chapter 3, Paul lays out his qualifications at this point. How righteous he was in his own mind at this point. Philippians 3 
halfway through uh, verse 4 going through 6, he says, If anyone else he has, uh, thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul, his righteousness, he said, look, I follow every part of the law. I do it all. I'm perfect. You can't point to one thing in my life that's out of alignment. And yet, he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Why was Paul wrong? Was Paul wrong because of his murderous thoughts? Is that what made him wrong? There's a lot lot of people in our culture who would say, hey, look, worship whoever you want to worship, right? Just don't hurt anybody else. That's... Paul was wrong because he worshipped a perverted version of God. That That was his sin here. It's not that worship whoever you want to worship. They're all, all paths lead to the same destination. Paul's problem is that he, he was worshiping the wrong God. He was worshiping a God who celebrated in the murder of people, who celebrated in the torture of Christians. See, back in Genesis... Chapter 1, when God was creating man, what did he say? He said, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. But we pervert that. Paul perverted that. And we say, let us make God in our own likeness. We even see that all the way back at the fall, when the devil is talking to Adam and Eve, and he says, did God really say, maybe eating this fruit isn't contrary to what God wants. Maybe it is what God wants. Maybe God wants what you want. See, from the very beginning, it has been our tendency, our our perversion to pervert God by forming him in our likeness according to what we want him to be, not according to who he is. Even Jonah with the Ninevites, we see an element of this there. Why did Jonah hate the Ninevites? Do you guys know this? Why did he hate them so much? What was his issue with the Ninevites? Well, Nineveh was a capital of Assyria. Assyria was becoming a global, you know, regional. I guess they didn't go much into Asia, but regional throughout Mesopotamia, superpower. They would be followed by the Babylonians, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greeks and the Romans, 
in the same way, but they were dominant and they were cruel. They were a direct threat to the northern kingdom of Israel where Jonah was. They were known for their brutal and creative torture, especially of captives of war. We see in Nahum 3.1, Nahum says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. That's speaking of Nineveh. I could share with you some of the stories that we have recorded in history of what the Assyrians did. It is not pretty. They, they did not have mercy. So do you think that Jonah might have been justified in wanting to see judgment upon these people? I could certainly understand that. And then God says to him, go and preach repentance to these people. Why did Jonah not want to do that? Because he knew that if he preached repentance and if they repented, God would forgive them. He knew it. And he didn't want it. He wanted judgment. He didn't want forgiveness. He wanted his enemies to be destroyed. And even after God forgave the Ninevites, what, what, did, what did Jonah do? He sat under that leaf, griping about who God is, wanting God to be the God of his image. Wanting God to take on his mind. But that's not who God is. The God that met with Jonah was a God who showed mercy to sinners, to the worst of sinners. So let's continue on. Acts 9, we'll start in verse 1 again. Said, but Saul, still breathing threats, and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what they called Christians before we were Christians, any belonging to the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is Paul doing what he thinks God wants him to do. Paul was not a postmodernist. He didn't believe that he could create the God of his own liking. This was the God that was commonly understood in Jewish, in, in Jewish culture at the time. But it was also a God who agreed with Paul in every thought. It was a God that found no wrong in Paul. Paul was a lot like Jonah, except he responded to God. So what you're really saying is you hate Christians and want them all to die. <laughs> no, no, go and preach repentance. So what you're really saying is that, that's Paul here. He's, he's perverted God. He's twisted into him, him into something that he's not. See, both Jonah and Paul's view of God did two things. They minimized God 
to their own image. God was simply a reflection of their own thoughts and desires. And they exalted themselves to God's stature. While seeking judgment for the Ninevites, Jonah did not recognize his own rebellion. When seeking judgment for the Christians, Paul did not acknowledge his own standing in guilt and deserving of judgment from God. While denying mercy to the Ninevites and to the Christians, both Paul and Jonah were deaf, were deaf to God's call of repentance in their life. Their view of God minimized God and exalted themselves. How, how do we make God in our image? Well, in our culture, we tend to treat God not so much as a person, but as a moral theory. It drives me crazy. You hear it all the time. My truth. <laughs> My truth. No, no, that, that's your opinion. And it's wrong because I'm right, right? <laughs> My truth, no, no. Does your God always agree with you? Is your God simply a glorified version of yourself? Is your God subjective and even changing as you change? If a decade ago, you thought that marriage was between a man and a woman. But today, you think that marriage should be extended to, to same-sex marriage, or is extended, and, and, and that's a good thing. I have a question for you. Did your God change his mind too? Because if your God is changing his mind every time you change his mind, I tell you that is not a God you want to build a life on. That is a, that's shifting sands for your building. Not just because it's a bad foundation do you not want to build your life on that God. You don't want to build your life on that God because that God is a lie. There is a God. He is a person. He is unchanging. He is reliable. If my wife's relationship with me was some fantasy of who she wanted me to be, I'd probably be a lot happier. <laughs> she could write away all my flaws, but it's not reality. You see, there is a real God, He is a real person, He can be known. And we can't change him by making up new attributes, by reading in our desires. He is who he is. You see, this rebellion, this molding of God in our image is our natural state since the fall. It is what we turn to. And in our po postmodern culture, we just see it exalted more clearly 
In the past, they would mold God in their own image as well. They just wouldn't pretend that everybody could mold God in their own image. Now we just, you know, we, we, we live with the intellectual fallacy of saying that your truth and my truth are contradictory, but they're both true. So the God who is, how does one extract himself from this state? How do we find the God who is? And the answer is we need an intervention. There is not a way by which we can turn and find the true God. We need the true God to show up. Verse 3. Now as they went on their way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And, I, and, he, and he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Here we see, Who are you, Lord, is Paul's question. Lord is an interesting work in the, word in the Greek, kurios. It... Um, it can mean sir or mister. It can have a lesser meaning. That's not the meaning here. You see, in Jewish tradition, because of the third commandment, do not take the Lord's name in vain, they were very, very concerned about overuse of the name of God. To the degree where they wouldn't say it, and even writing it, they would write it in such a way they didn't have to write the whole thing. So they would, they'd leave the vowels out. Whenever they wrote it, it would be Y-H-W-H. And depending on how you pronounce your Y's and W's, that either becomes Yahweh or Jehovah. But the Jews, they would not say the word of God. They would not say the name of God when they were reading. When they came across Y-H-W-H in their text, they would say Adonai or Adonai. I'm not sure quite where the emphasis is on that word. That means Lord, Master, supreme in authority. And here, in the, uh, that, that tradition carries over into the Greek, and we, we see the name of God being replaced with the word kurios, Master. We know this to be the case because Paul himself goes on to use in his letters the, 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 the word curious or derivatives of there over 160 times. And the first century church testified, this is him talking about Jesus being God. It is speaking to divinity, the master of all things. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, Paul writes this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though when he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born into the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Curios. To the glory 
of God the Father. So Paul is recognizing he just met God on the road. God stepped in front of him and said, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, God? Imagine, to Paul's shock, the answer. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The intellectual dissonance that must have been going on in his head. How could Jesus, the heretic, be God? How could the man, Jesus, be God? And yet, God is standing in front of him saying, I'm Jesus. We read last week in Ephesians where Paul describes our Damascus Road experience. God's intervention in our lives. Ephesians 2, 1 through 4, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of the, this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived, who, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We need an intervention. If you are a believer today, it is not because of your great intellect. It's not because you searched and found the truth. It's because God revealed the truth to you. You were intervened in. Your life had God step into it and your eyes were opened and you were able to see beyond your own rebellion. So what is the standard of truth in this? How do we know who Jesus is? Once we know Jesus is God, how do we protect ourselves from forming Jesus into our own image? Once again, I'd point you a little bit later in the book of Acts to Paul. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away, chapter 17, verse 10, by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And now those Jews were more, no more noble than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all eagerness, listen, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. This is God's revealed truth to us. This is how we know God. This is where we find him. He gave us Jesus who came to earth in the form of a man. Not considering equality to God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself and took on the form of a man. That we might know God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, 
as of the only begotten of the Father. The word, Greek logos, it's literally the full expression of God communicating to us who he is. We find that Jesus and the rest of God's words to us here where God says, this is who I am. This God disagrees with me. Is not the God I would have designed. I have been continually over the last 20 years been diving into doctrine after doctrine saying, okay, certainly, certainly God's not like this. And I go in and I say, oh man, he's not the God I designed. But I tell you this, he is beautiful. And he loves sinners. And he has mercy for those who cry out. 